Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So what I'd like to do is to just take uh, a few minutes. Uh, we'll see how many we need, five, ten minutes. Uh, if there are any questions from yesterday that are lingering, that like you left yesterday with a question in your mind that you're still holding, that you haven't had a chance to ask. I know one person came up to me just beforehand and said she had a question. So would you like to ask that question now? Yes. Great. Let's just get you a microphone. Good morning. Good morning. Um, on studying Hinduism and Buddhism, if you could just clarify, I know on the Paramitas and many of the other texts and sutras, would you clarify heart-mind connection on what you're actually speaking about when you're talking about the heart. Are you talking about the chakras? Are you talking about an area in the mind that uh, Buddhist research is talking sure. and studying about? Because yeah. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. So, in the uh, Buddhist psychology the word that's translated as heart and mind is chitta. Um, in the Asian way of understanding uh, human consciousness, that which we call heart and mind in the West are not separate. Um, so the chitta is the experience, the conscious experience that we have as human beings of being affected by life and the capacity to respond. So the impulses or intentions that we generate. So in the Buddhist psychology, citta is the domain of feeling and perception. So perceptions are meanings like friendly, attractive, profound, boring. These kinds of meanings that color our experience um, or the, the, the meanings that structure our reality, room, cushion. So the perceptions that we experience and the feelings that come with them, the feeling tone of agreeable, disagreeable, this is what the heart and the mind experience. And then the responses, the intentions that come out of that. Within the Asian context, the chitta is understood to be here, behind the sternum in the center of the, the chest, which if you consider from an experiential level where we sense um, emotion, feeling, affect, it tends to be here. Uh, this does not, the, the, the chitta is not referring to a physical sense base in the way that seeing is dependent on the eye and hearing is dependent on the ear. It's not saying that there's an organ here. It's saying that the experience of consciousness happens, tends to be felt 
in this region of the body. Um, there, there are other nuances to the Buddhist psychology. Uh, there's what's known as um, mano vijnana, which is mind consciousness. And uh, mano is the, the sense base considered the mind, which doesn't, which could be equated with the brain. Uh, the question of is the chitta what the Buddhists are talking about as chitta? Is that what like modern neuroscientists are studying in terms of brain imaging? Um, that's a good question. I don't I don't know. Uh, there definitely seems to be a correlation. You know the the changes that are are being observed in meditators' brains appear in different regions of the human brain in terms of attention or focus or compassion or kindness or empathy. Uh, so there does appear to be a biological and neurological basis for certain emotions or mind states that would be considered the domain of the citta in Buddhist psychology. From the perspective of, of, of Buddhism, it, it, it's an interesting exploration, but the, the metric that's always used is, is this helping me to live a life that's more uh, satisfying and free? So Buddhism is a very practical philosophy, religion, way of life, it's not so much interested in creating a static system that says, well, this is what this is, and this is what that is, and this is how they relate. It's more about how do you apply these ideas to your own life in a way that's transformative. So everything is meant to be investigated and applied and understood to that end, rather than establishing some kind of absolute truth or system that then we got everything tidied up and we know what it is. So is that helpful? Yeah, okay, great. So again, questions that are left over from yesterday that are unclear, still kind of knocking around in your mind. This person in blue and then this gentleman with the scarf. Hi. Um, something that's been kind of um, occupying my mind is, can you explain the relationship between um, the self or not self with equanimity? I, I like identifying, you know, negative thoughts and emotions that arise with our person. I find that not identifying helps me, but I'm. What is the general sort of principle around this? Let me see if I'm understanding the question. So when negative thoughts or emotions come up in relation to another person or some events in one's life, how does one understand those in terms of the teaching around self and not self? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in, and in the growing of equanimity, mm -hmm. like do we try to foster this um, not self principle in order to, like, well, does it help? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, thank you.
Well, that's a good reminder. Yeah, we forgot to remind, if you have a cell phone, to just silence that or turn it off. Now's a good time to do that. So the teaching on not-self is a kind of another one of those subtle teachings that can be misused very easily to, to cut off from experience. Um, the Buddha was um, a little bit hard to pin down on this subject in some ways, as you probably know. Like when asked point blank, is there a self, he refused to answer. So the one way of looking at it is that there is the experience that we have of being someone. That experience is real. The experience is real. But the belief that there is a separate independent person is not what we think it is. So in terms of the development of equanimity, um, I, 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 I do think that the teaching of anatta, non-self, might be a better translation, can be very useful in the sense of not taking things personally. We tend to take everything personally. You know, someone's a little bit disgruntled and think, oh no, what did I do? Why is it about you, you know? Everything revolves around us. Or we take our own thoughts and emotions personally, right? So if I'm feeling um, anger towards someone, oh no, why am I so angry? I'm such an angry person. I have anger issues. I should probably go buy a book on anger. What kind of book should I get on anger? There are lots of books on anger. Why am I so indecisive? I can never make decisions. I'll never be able to make... And we're, you know... Just from having an, a, a, an, a one thought of ill will that passed through consciousness. So the understanding of anatta, which is related to what we'll be looking at this morning in terms of, um, in terms of kamma kar, or karma, uh, is that the, the, the experience of life is a flow of changing conditions and forces, internal and external. And so rather than identifying with experience, thoughts, emotions, impulses, as me and mine, or meaning something about me, they're just patterns. They're just different energies and forces that happen to arise, just like, you know, there's a little fog this morning. You know, the conditions in the atmosphere are slightly different today than they were yesterday. There's more moisture in the air. It's a little cooler. So then... It gathers and there's fog. So that's the same internally. There are certain natural laws that um, govern the functioning of our minds and hearts. So rather than it being personal, something about me, it's just that when, the condi- when certain conditions come together, then certain things arise. And so that way of looking at things um, as natural forces coming together and changing allows us to not get too caught up in uh, taking things personally. Doesn't mean that we don't still feel what's happening. Doesn't mean that we don't still respond and say, oh, this anger is perhaps telling me something that I need to take care of. And I also want to be very careful about how I relate to this thought so that it doesn't snowball into rage and end up for, you know, impelling me to say something hurtful. 
but it doesn't need to mean something about who we are. We don't need to become defined by or driven by it. Yeah. You're welcome. Now I'm trying to take my dilemma not too personally. <laughs> um, the gap between my intellectual understanding and my meditative emotional understanding is quite large. Um, I feel like a third grader emotionally attending a physics lecture. <laughs> Your discourse is very clear and very focused and wonderful and understandable but it's not happening inside, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which has a lot to do with me, of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm, I'm sensing um, like a, maybe a combination of like a yearning for, for understanding and, and, and deeper embodiment. And is there also some sadness, maybe, or yeah, a bit of frustration, <laughs> and some frustration, yeah, yeah. There's, um, yeah, and and I'm I'm imagining it's because you care so deeply about this path and practice, and maybe sense something uh, that's very close to your heart in it. Been at it a while. Uh huh. I see. Yeah. So there's a question about making progress and, 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 and actually maturing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a very painful perception. Um, not good enough, not getting it. That's, that's, a, that's a hard one. Yeah. So I think the starting point is first to be with the way things are now, which is this particular perception. Right? So it's like, OK, here's this weather pattern internally. I don't get it. I'm a third grader. Right? This is what it feels like to believe the thought the perception, not getting it, never will never get it. Maybe that one's there too. Right? So these these are perceptions. These are the word in Pali is sanya. It's a meaning. It's uh, that the mind creates around experience. And just like sense contact, a perception can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When there's an unpleasant perception that we pick up and hold as me or mine, that hurts. So the practice in this moment is to feel that experience, to be with, with as much balance and kindness and uh, presence as you can to see and know clearly this particular human experience of not good enough, can't get it, 
not making progress. Right? You are not the only human being who's ever experienced this frustration and sadness and tension inside. Okay? Freedom from that experience comes from the willingness to consciously inhabit it with awareness and see it as it is, clearly. It's not you. It wasn't here, you know, two days ago. It won't be here in maybe 10 minutes or two hours. It comes and goes based on certain conditions. So along the lines of the the question that was asked just previously, to see, rather than seeing it from the perspective of self, this is something true about who I am, to, to see if there can be enough space, a little bit of a stepping back inside that says, okay, this is what it feels like to not get it. Oof, how does it feel, you know, small, aching, shaky, you know, hard, pushing, right? The, the whole kind of swirl of experience that comes with it. And then to observe how the mind picks that up. And then if there's a moment where the mind is not identified with it, where awareness is just knowing that experience without being defined by it, a little bit of equanimity. And then just observe that difference. It's a very powerful and freeing place to practice, to see the stories that we have about ourselves. We all have different stories about ourselves that we believe to be true, that are painful. And the more we, the more we either fall into them and believe them on one hand, and just go down the drain or fight against them on the other, right? All of the ways that we posture or pretend or do everything we can to avoid that possibility, either way, we're still being ruled by, we're still being dominated by the fear of that perception. So to face it head on, to look the monster in the eyes, to to, to look into the face of of this experience and to see what is this really? Who is this person? It takes strength. It takes a certain kind of fortitude to just look into the, one, one of my teachers says like, look in the face of the mind. So when you're in that place, see your own face. What does it look like? How old is it? What's the emotion written on the face? to allow that experience to to pass through you without needing to believe it. It's just an experience. See, we we keep thinking that we're going to get something, that we're going to um, get a, a Dhamma certificate that says, you now understand the Four Noble Truths, check. You know, and then whenever we have a problem or a question, we can take the certificate out and look at it and go, no, look, I'm certified. I've got, I've got a mindfulness certification. That means that, you know, I've got it figured out and I don't need to feel this. That's not the way the Dharma works. 
It's an embodied understanding. It's a lived understanding that we need to keep discovering moment to moment. And we get caught. We get lost. And when we get lost, we're all beginners. So this is one, this is one level of what I'm hearing from you, which is practice with this experience in this moment. Rather than believing the story, following the storyline, and saying, how come I don't get it, and what's wrong with me, and I've been practicing for so long, and when will I? Now you're in time, which is moving further away from the truth of Dhamma. The, the, the essence of the Dharma is not in the future. It's not something that we get in the future. It's something that's experienced and understood right here and now. That said, we live in time. You have a certain number of years of life experience, and you started encountering the Dharma a certain number of years ago, and there is this belief and this perception, right? So it can be useful when you're not in the throes of the self-doubt. When you're not in the throes of the self-doubt, take a look. You know, take a look at your life. Take a look at yourself and look back 10, 20 years ago, whenever you first started practicing at how you lived, how your mind behaved. And just consider, am I any different? You know, do I treat people differently? Am I more patient? Am I less violent with my actions or my words? Am I more loving? Is my heart a little bit more open? Is there a little bit more understanding or wisdom about life? You know, take a look and see. Because when we're, when we're lost in a hindrance like self-doubt, inadequacy, the, 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 we're not seeing clearly. That's not the time to look back and, and see, because you know what you're going to see. <laughs> You're looking through those glasses. But it is important to evaluate our practice and consider, you know, is this bearing fruit in any way? Which doesn't mean that we've had, you know, ecstatic experiences of awakening. Look at the the day-to-day and what's the direction of my life? What's the course of how I'm living? And is there any change that that I'm seeing? And then if not, to say, okay, well, let's, let's look at this. What's going on here? Is, there, is this not the right path or practice for me? Am I not practicing in the proper way? Do I need to clarify something with a teacher? Yeah. But then it's not coming from a sense of I'm not good enough. It's coming from a, just a kind of balanced discernment. Mm-hmm. I hope that's helpful. Thank you for the question. You're probably not alone in that experience. I certainly suffered plenty myself from from that perception. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. This um, piggybacks on your comment. And um, as someone who spent their career as an elementary school teacher, we had a saying that in order for a lesson to fully sink in, 
with your young students, you had to teach it 25 times to them. Oh. And, you know, we, you get frustrated um, thinking that the first time you hear something, you're going, it's going to soak in and you're going to get it. And when it doesn't happen as a teacher, um, you're wondering why those students aren't picking it up because mm-hmm. you're so clear and precise. Mm-hmm. But my question is, I went home yesterday uh, feeling um, very deeply your teachings. And thank you for being such a concise and wonderful teacher. <laughs> I don't know about concise, but come on. <laughs> um, and one thing, I sort of had an aha moment about equanimity in my practice in that I tend to um, dive into Buddhism and then life gets a hold of me and I forget about it maybe for a year or so. And then I dive back in to the deep end usually and get very gung-ho about it and then wander off, getting busy with other things. And I recently retired from teaching and decided, yay, now I can really be a Buddhist. Now I can go to every retreat, attend every sangha meeting, all up and down the coast. I'm on my way to Spirit Rock next. I mean, nothing's getting in my way. But then life happens. And my children, who have a baby, are like, aren't you going to babysit? And Uh my husband, who's not retired. Um, So what I wanted to ask you is I sort of had this, uh, you know, realization that equanimity is not just, for me anyways, um, understanding what it is literally, but maybe I need to apply it to my practice as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I wondered if you had some comments on, especially as somebody in your line of work, you're immersed in Buddhism all the time, but do you ever find you have to step out of it or you have to step back? Or do you actually reach a point where it's what it is for you 24 hours a day? Mm. And is there such a thing as having equanimity in your practice where you're not a born-again Buddhist every day of your life, but you know, you're balancing it with things in life? I, I kind of feel like um, like this gentleman over here where I'm a third grader still, and I haven't quite achieved that wisdom mm-hmm. to see how it can be all-encompassing in everything I do. Mm-hmm. Anyways, your comments on that would be very much appreciated. Thank you. Well, that's why we call it a practice, right? Um, yeah, I would, I would agree that it's not enough to understand equanimity intellectually. It needs to be applied. In the Buddhist tradition, there's a teaching that talks about uh, three different levels of wisdom. There's what's known as um, the wisdom of um, hearing the teachings. It's called Suttamayapanya. So we hear something, and that's one level of intellectual understanding. Then there's what's called chittamayapanya, which is a level of wisdom that comes from actively reflecting on something. So what we hear, we take it in, we internalize it, we, we turn it over, we consider, we examine our life through that lens, and, and what we've heard now starts to become our own way of relating or thinking, a perspective that starts to be internalized on a little bit more of a deeper level. This is chitta mayapanya. 
And then the third level of wisdom is bhavana maya panya. Bhavana means uh, cultivation or practice. And this is taking that internalized understanding and applying it. Applying it through uh, the meditation practice, applying it through the events and unfolding of our life. And then it becomes a, an embodied understanding, a lived understanding, which is the goal of, of practice. Um, and that takes time. It takes patience, repetition. Uh, structure is very helpful. So having specific forms that we are working with, that's why you will hear most meditation teachers encouraging a daily practice, a formal period of daily meditation practice, because it makes it easier to remember in the flow of our daily activities. If we've had that time at the beginning or once a day or twice a day to just focus on the, the inner workings of the mind and kind of... Uh, detoxify all of the stuff that gets put in there. Um, I do not live in a state of balanced awareness 24-7. I can say, you know, after a couple of decades of practice that I'm the default, the baseline has shifted significantly. Um, I... I am more aware more of the time. And when I'm not, that way of being is never far away. It's like it's always right there. Um, When I get caught up or reactive, when I get hit with a strong emotion that that sweeps me away, It's not difficult to bring awareness to bear on that experience. Um, They don't linger as long. I don't spin as long. So these are the results of practice. This is what um, Daniel Goleman and Richie Davidson are are pointing to as altered traits, lasting effects that, that alter the baseline, the default baseline of our way of being rather than just temporary changes that come from, you know, if you, uh, you rub your hands together and then your hands feel warm for 30 seconds and then it just goes away. But over time, the repeated application of these mental training exercises shift the resting state of the mind or shift the tendencies of the mind. Um, so how to make it a reality how to really apply it to your life. Um, this is, the, this is the, the, the joyful project of spiritual and contemplative practice, is being creative. We get to be creative with how we inhabit this practice. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Sit for 45 minutes, twice a day, and you're good. You know, it's, that's not the way it works. You know, for some people, they sit for 10 minutes in the morning, and then they do like one or two minutes throughout the day at different points. You know, there are many, many ways to integrate this practice into your life, having an altar, doing chanting, doing devotional practice, service, generosity. So, shameless plug. (laughs) 
that's one of the reasons why I created Next Step Dharma, is to give people some structure to say, how do I take these practices and really apply them, really integrate them into my life? So, you know, in the course, each week has a different theme with not just, you know, guided meditations to do formally, but actual practices to integrate into the flow of your life. Like, here are three or four suggestions. Choose one of these this week and practice with it in your life during your day and then report back on how that went. And so, you know, it doesn't need to be next step dharma, but creating some structure in your life where you're actively working on something. So it's great to sit, but it's not enough. Going back to the question this gentleman asked yesterday, you know, it's helpful to have some kind of intentionality around the mind. So what are you working on right now? You're working on patience, generosity, equanimity, kindness, compassion, truthfulness, speech. I mean, it's, it's a huge array of methods of cultivation. And it's too much to try to do it all at once. So we need some, some focus. We need to actually take one thing and say, this is going to be my primary you know, focus for the next week or month or year. And you know, we also do the other things. We practice the precepts. You know, we cultivate the other paramis and so forth. But it's helpful to have one or two things in the foreground so that when in a moment of disorientation or not knowing, we, we, we know what we're coming back to in terms of the cultivation. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Oren's work, you can donate at orenjsofer.com forward slash support. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.